0: Merry Christmas, George's Creek. Good to see everybody here this morning. Today, we are celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because on this day, a little over 2,000 years ago, uh, angels burst forth with an announcement. The Bible says that the angels appeared and they proclaimed, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you, is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, that was the breaking news story of the day. And that's some news you can't exactly ignore, right? If angels are bursting forth out of nowhere and declaring that a king has been born and it's Christ the Lord, the Messiah, and you've been waiting thousands of years for this, you can't ignore that. And it's pretty hard to ignore any breaking news story, isn't it? There there are typically four responses when you have some sort of huge breaking news story. If you want to just think about a recent one from recent memory, uh, on September 10th of this year, it was announced that Charles would be the new King of England. That was the breaking news story of the day, and immediately you began to see various responses, typically four common responses. You had those who were angry at this announcement, right? They they didn't really like Charles that much because of his past and some things that he had done in his past. They even started a hashtag on Twitter that was King Charles the Cruel, and so people were outraged and furious about Charles becoming the king. Other people, they weren't angry so much as anxious, right? They They weren't angry, but they just They didn't know how he was going to be as a king. He had never served as a king before. They didn't know how his age was going to affect his kingship. And so they weren't angry so much as anxious. And then there was another response. People like myself and many other Americans and people from other countries who weren't angry or anxious, we were just apathetic. Because personally, I couldn't care less about (laughs) who the figurehead of England is. It has no bearing on my life. I know that some people are like really obsessed with the royal family. That's not me. I really just do not care. So it had no effect on me. And then there were other responses, and this was a pretty common one as well. People were adoring, weren't they? There are people who are huge supporters of the royal family, and they're ready to throw their support by whoever they put in charge there. And so they were ready to give their allegiance to King Charles and say, I'm all in on this king. And, and those were the four responses that you saw. And it's interesting when we look at this well-known passage in the Gospel of Matthew. I wonder if you notice those are the same four responses that we saw in this passage. This is the the, the response of the people to the news that the king has been born. The declaration has gone out. Jesus has been born. The king has come. And when you look at this story, you begin to realize that the the whole point, the reason it's included here is that that God wants us to know when, when we understand who Jesus is and what he came to do, The only right response is worship and adoration. I hope you understand that this morning as we go through this passage together. When we understand who Jesus is and what he came to do, regardless of those other responses, the only right response is worship and adoration. Now, let me just ask you real quick, is that what we see in our world today? You tell someone Jesus Christ is king, are they going to start worshiping and adoring Jesus in that moment? No, you don't really see that. And my question is, why? Why do so many fail to worship and adore Jesus? That's the question I want us to consider together this morning, church. Why do so many fail to worship and adore Jesus? And I want to start by looking at the first three verses again. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Well, of course Herod was troubled, okay? You read that and you go, oh, why was Herod troubled? Listen, if you were Herod you would be troubled too. This was alarming news for him because do you know what Herod's official title was? Based on where he was ruling at the time, Herod's official title was King of the Jews. And here come some wise men, some magi from a foreign land, and and I'm, I'm sorry to, to have to do this, but contrary to, to popular belief and And contrary to a song that we have already sang this morning, there weren't just three of them. In fact, uh, there's probably an entire convoy. It was probably a hundred plus people. So, so, So put this in your mind. Imagine you're Herod, and there you are in Jerusalem. You are the king of the Jews. That is your official title. Here comes a foreign convoy looking like an invasion, saying that they are here to worship and give their allegiance to the king of the Jews. And they ask you, where's he at? Because they're not talking about you. (laughs) That's alarming, right? Of course he's troubled. This is a direct threat to you and your position and your authority. This is a direct threat to your life. He's not just troubled. He's angry. He's outraged. In fact, we're going to see more of that next week when when Herod is so angry by this news that he goes on a killing spree and decides to murder all male children two years old and younger, which is why you shouldn't have wise men in your nativity scene. But that's another sermon, okay? Jesus might have been about two years old at the time. But Herod is outraged. He's furious. He wants to rid himself of this new problem. And, And it's because he understands what this means. Right? He understands that if there is someone else out there who rightly is called the king of the Jews, who rightly owns that title, it means that Herod is not the real, true king. It means that there is another who is deserving of the people's loyalty and obedience. There is another person who is not Herod, who has sovereign power and authority. And that's troubling. And so he's angry. And I wonder if you realize that people still respond this way to Jesus today. People are still angry at Jesus. You tell people in our world today that Jesus is king. That Jesus alone has sovereign power and authority over all people and all things. They're not going to worship and adore him. They're going to get angry. In fact, I remember having a conversation with one of my closest friends who's an atheist. And uh, we are close friends, but he's an atheist, and and we are having a conversation, and, and he was very angry with me because I was saying that certain things should be illegal because the Bible says that they're sins, and America is clearly sinning against God by allowing these things, and they should be illegal. And he was furious with me. In fact, this is what he said. He said, Alex, your religion doesn't get to say what does and does not go in America because not everybody holds to your religious views. And so since not everybody holds to your religious views, you can't impose your religious views on people who don't hold those religious views. America doesn't have to do what God says because not all of America believes in God. I knew it was going to be a fun conversation then. So this is what I said back to him. I said, whether or not they hold to the teachings of Scripture does absolutely nothing to undermine the authority or the veracity of Scripture, does it, church? It doesn't matter if they acknowledge it. doesn't matter if they recognize it. It doesn't even matter if they believe it. That does absolutely nothing to undermine the authority and veracity of Scripture. I said, uh, imagine it would be like this. It would be like if the police were trying to arrest someone for murder. And the person who literally just got done murdering someone said, ho, wait a second, you can't arrest me. I don't believe in the police. I don't believe the police have any authority. I don't recognize the police's authority. Therefore, you cannot arrest me for murdering that person. Hands are tied at that point, right? <laughs> Nothing the police can do. No, of course not. The police are going to arrest that guy, and they're going to be like, hey, it doesn't matter if you believe in us or not. It doesn't matter if you recognize our authority or not. It doesn't matter if you acknowledge it or not. You're under arrest because we do have authority. That's how it works. Or imagine it would be like if my oldest son Judah decided that he didn't like the rules in my house. Imagine that for a second if you can, okay? Imagine that that he said he didn't like the rules in my house, and so he decided that he was going to come up with his own rules. And he said that in his room, he's the boss. He's the authority, and in his room, he can do whatever he wants, and daddy can't say otherwise. There's just one problem with that. It's my house. (laughs) And in my house, I make the rules. He doesn't get to decide that my authority is limited because he says it is or because he doesn't want me to have authority over a particular place in our house. That's not the way that works. And in the same way, folks, I want you to realize God does not need our permission or acknowledgement to have rule and authority over us. Amen? God doesn't need you to believe that he's the sovereign ruler overall in order to make it true. God doesn't need you to acknowledge that. He doesn't need you to be on board with that. He is the sovereign ruler, whether people like it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, whether they believe it or not. And the world hates this about Jesus. They're as angry about it today as Herod was back in his day. In fact, people in our country, they'll shout, separation of church and state, even though 99% of them have no idea where that phrase originated or even what it actually means. People in our country today will say, you can't impose your religious views on us because we don't believe in your religion. And so we can do whatever we want. Well, there's just one problem with that. God says in Psalm 50, every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. In other words, church, it's all God's. God created all things, and so God is the sovereign ruler in authority over all things. And this is what angered Herod to his core. It's what angers so many today, and I want you to understand why that is. People are angered by Jesus' authority because they're threatened by his authority. That's ultimately what it comes down to. The reason that people are are angered by Jesus's authority is because they're threatened by his authority. And they're threatened because they understand the implications of what it means for Jesus to be the sovereign ruler, don't they? I mean, I think they understand it a lot better than some Christians do today. Can I say that? Are you okay with me saying that? But I think it's true. I think they understand the implications because if Jesus does have authority, and He's the sovereign authority over all things, it means I'm to be subject to Him. It means that I don't get to decide for myself what is right and what is wrong. God does. It means that I don't get to decide for myself what is good and what is bad. God does. It means that I don't get to live as though I am the sovereign over my own life. I have to subject myself to another. If Jesus truly is the sovereign authority over all things, then folks, it means that his word is not opinion and his commands are not suggestions. Do you hear me, church? His commands are not suggestions. It means that his ways are not limited by human governments or territories or provinces. When God says that he is the king over all the earth, it actually means over all the earth, not just America. It means that his church is not governed by traditions or personal preferences. It means that our lives are not our own. It means that he is the authority over our lives, not us. Those are the implications of Jesus being the sovereign ruler. And people get angry by that because they are threatened by that. You see, here's the reality of the situation, folks. When we hear the news that Jesus is king over all creation, we only have two options. We can either receive him with joy and worship and humble submission, or else be found to be in rebellion and open defiance of the one true king over all the earth. So my question to you this morning, George's Creek, is are you threatened by his kingship, or are you thrilled by his kingship? Herod? He was threatened, and he was angry. And did you notice there was another response coupled right there with Herod's? Did you catch it there in verse 3? Look again at verse 3. It says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod was angry, but Jerusalem was anxious, right? Right? They're not necessarily angry. We know that Herod is angry because he's going to go on a killing spree. But Jerusalem, the people are anxious. Why is that? Well, I mean, uh, just think of a few reasons. First and foremost, in those days, if the king wasn't happy, no one was happy, right? If Herod felt threatened, and felt like someone was trying to take his throne away from him, he was going to make the lives of the people miserable. He was going to put them on lockdown. He might even go on a killing spree and kill all male children, right? (laughs) If the king wasn't happy, no one was happy. So they're worried about this. But then also remember that that when the, the wise men and their convoy were coming from this foreign land, it looked like a foreign invasion. And Jerusalem was no stranger to foreign invasions, were they? So so picture this in your mind you're just a citizen of Jerusalem and you look out and you see this entire convoy from a foreign land and you hear them say that they're here to worship the king and they're not talking about Herod you go okay here we go again it's another babylon or assyria we're about to be exiled again and you begin to wonder well what does this mean for me what does this mean for my family Are we going to have to go to another land? Are they going to allow us to stay here? What's the the new rule going to be like? You get to be very anxious because you have a lot of questions that you want answered in that time. And then another reason, and it's easy to think about this in terms of a a modern saying, better the devil you know than the devil you don't, right? (laughs) That's probably what the people were thinking. Now, they might not have liked Herod, and very few people did, but at least they knew him, right? They knew what made him tick. They knew what to expect with Harry. They knew what they could do and what they couldn't do. And so, if now there's this new king and they don't know who this is, they don't know what he's going to be like as a king. They don't know what to expect from him. They don't know how it's going to affect their lives. And so, they hear the news of a king and they think to themselves, What does this mean for me in my life? What does this mean for my family? What is our lives, what are we going to look like moving forward? They have a lot of questions and they want answers and so they're anxious. And and I just want you to understand this morning that anxiety about Jesus' kingship comes from our fear of the unknown. Anxiety about Jesus' kingship comes from our fear of the unknown. And I think fear of the unknown actually underlies most of our other fears, right? I mean, if you start breaking down every other fear, a lot of it has to do with fear of the unknown. I mean, just think about a common one. Fear of death is one of the most common fears in our world today, right? Why are people so afraid of death? It's because they don't actually know what happens afterward. I mean, you think about an unbeliever. Think about an atheist who would say, I don't believe anything comes afterward. You ask him, well, why are you afraid to die then? It's because they don't actually know. And in fact, if we are going to be scientific and scientists say that we have to follow the evidence empirically and and wherever it leads. Well, there's no empirical data about what comes after death, is there? (laughs) Because you haven't died. You don't know what happens afterward. You can't study that. And so you're left going, based on everything I think I know, there's nothing that comes afterward. But deep down, they don't actually know. And so since there's a lot of fear of the unknown there, they fear death. And whether you realize it or not, and it's hard for a lot of people in church culture today to realize this, there's a lot of fear of the unknown when it comes to the fact that Jesus is king and he calls people to follow him. Have you realized this yet? There's a lot of fear of the unknown with that, that call to follow Jesus and submit your life to him. In fact, that was a huge part of my story because I remember the exact place I was standing, When I first started feeling like the Lord was trying to get my attention. I wasn't a believer at the time. I was an atheist. It was my very first semester at North Greenville University. It was nighttime and I was standing on a balcony. And I just had this surreal moment where I was like, I'm beginning to think that God is real. And that for whatever reason, he's trying to talk to me. He's trying to get my attention. And he wants me to become a Christian. I had been you know, exposed to so much gospel preaching in one short period of time. And the Lord had surrounded me by such loving Christians that all these things just started piling up. And listen, rather than making me joyful and go, oh, well, this is great. The sovereign creator of the universe actually wants something to do with me. I was terrified because I was an atheist at the time. I was dating a girl who was an atheist at the time. I had some of my best friends were atheists who hated church and hated Christianity. They hated Jesus. And so rather than rejoicing and being all happy, I started becoming fearful and anxious about what is this going to mean for my life? I can't deny the fact that I'm beginning to believe that God is real, that he's trying to get a hold of me to try to get my attention, that he's calling me to follow Jesus, but I don't know what this is going to mean for my life moving forward. I don't know how this is going to affect my friendships. I don't know how this is going to affect my relationship. And so I was really anxious about that. And folks, that's what a lot of people are still dealing with today. I don't think we give people enough, enough credit to just say like, oh, hey, repent and believe or just you know, give your life to Christ. It's not that easy, is it? That's a huge decision. First and foremost, that's one reason why we don't encourage just quick decisions here at George's Creek. You're never going to see me do a mass altar call and tell Mazan, Mazan, play that song one more time because I believe there's someone else out there. We're going to be here for just one more. Come on down. Come on down. Mazan, play it again. I've seen that a million times at North Greenville. so (laughs) We're not going to do that here. We're not going to coerce people into making this life-altering decision right on the spot. We want people to do what Jesus told them to do, which, believe it or not, Jesus said, hey, hey, hold up. Count the cost. Right? He said, you want to come and follow me? That's a heavy decision. That's a life-changing decision. That is going to change your entire life. It is going to flip your life upside down. You need to count the cost. And so we don't encourage quick decisions here. We always have follow-up conversations here. We always encourage people Count the cost of following Jesus, because it will cost you. Choosing to follow Jesus does not lead to an easy life, does it, church? But it leads to eternal life. It's not the easiest decision to make, but it is the best decision you can possibly make, is it not? And there are a lot of people who are anxious about this fact. Let's give people a little credit, okay? Because I know there could even be some people here this morning who are beginning to think and realize in their hearts, I believe that there is a God in heaven. I actually believe He might be real. And I think that He is trying to get a hold of me, that He's trying to get my attention. I believe He's calling me to become a Christian and submit my life to Christ. And I don't know what that's going to look like for my life moving forward. I don't know how that's going to affect my friends and my family. I don't know how my family is going to respond to me making that decision. But listen to me. Even if I can't tell you how your family's going to respond or how your friends are going to respond, it's the right decision. Because Jesus is the king over all things. He's the sovereign creator over all things. And he is the one who watches over his people, is he not? You have a lot of fear about the unknown. I can't help you with that too much because I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not God. But one of the best parts about being a Christian is that even when you don't know what the future holds, you are following and trusting in the one person who is actually sovereign over all that the future holds. I don't have to be anxious about what's coming in the future. I don't have to be anxious and fearful of all the things I don't know. Why? Because my, hands is in, my life is in the hands of God, and He watches over me, and He is committed to the good of His people. Do you believe that this morning, George's Creek? That God is not just sovereign, but He's committed to the good of His people. He works in all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. It's not an easy decision to follow Christ, and it might make you anxious, but listen to me. You have to do what God calls you to do because it's it's the best thing you possibly can do. So Herod, he was angry, and that's expected, is it not? Jerusalem... They're anxious, and that's understandable, right? But there's one response here. Y'all are going to make me start preaching in just a minute. There's one response here, and it is the saddest response of them all. I want you to notice what happens in verses 4 through 6. This is what the Bible says. I want you to pay attention, and then I'm going to try to restrain myself. In assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, And Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And that's it. That is all we hear from the religious leaders Of Israel. Do you see it now? Do you see how sad that is? These are the people who, more than anyone else, they should have been looking for the storm, shouldn't they, Church? They should have been the ones waiting eagerly. They should have been the ones filled with anticipation. They should have been the ones who recognized the star, who recognized its significance, who recognized what God was doing in their midst in that moment. They should have been the first ones to leave where they were, follow the star, and go and worship God's Messiah. And yet, they don't. The people who actually recognize the star and its significance and what God is doing and leave where they are and they go to worship this Messiah who has come into the world or a bunch of pagan, foreign stargazers from another land. It's embarrassing. It's an indictment on the religious leaders of Israel. I want you to notice this. Don't don't miss this, church. The religious leaders of Israel, they knew the right answer, didn't they? Oh, that's so sad. They knew the right answer here. It's like, hey, I've got a question. It's concerning the Messiah. Maybe you want to go and get your scrolls and consult with each other. No, no, no. no. We don't need scrolls. Who needs scrolls. We've got it memorized. We know the answer by heart. We've committed it to memory. We don't need to go and get some scrolls. We can tell you exactly where he's going to be born, exactly when it's going to happen. We know what the scripture says. But there's a huge difference between knowing what the Scripture says and believing what the Scripture says is in their church. There's a huge difference between simply knowing what Scripture says and actually believing what the Scripture says. You see, if our knowledge of Scripture leads to apathy and indifference rather than worship and obedience, then listen to me, we have failed to truly believe Scripture. Did you hear me on that, church? If our knowledge of Scripture leads to apathy and indifference rather than worship and obedience, you haven't actually believed Scripture. You might know a lot of the Bible, but you don't actually believe what it says. That's exactly what we see here. I want you to understand this morning that apathy is the fruit of unbelief. If you hear the news that Jesus is king over all creation and he's come into this world, he's entered into our mess to become like us in every way, to live a perfect, sinless life, die on the cross in our place, rise again and intercede for us to this day and that does nothing for you. You can be completely indifferent and apathetic to that. Let me tell you why. It's because you don't actually believe what you're hearing. Apathy is the fruit of unbelief. And let me say, this explains why the church is in the state that it is in today. Does it not? Let me explain. You see, the reason that people don't really care about coming to church anymore and being committed to the weekly gathering of the church is because although they know that the Scripture says, do not neglect the gathering of the church, as is the habit of some. They know what the Scripture says, They don't actually believe that the gathering of the church is that important. That's just something that happens on Sundays and Wednesdays. Go if you want to. Don't go if you don't want to. No big deal, right? They know what the scripture says, but they don't actually believe that the gathering of the church is that important. So they don't commit themselves. You see, the reason that people don't really care about missions and evangelism today is because although they know that the scripture says... That missions and evangelism is the purpose and the work of the church. They don't actually believe that it's their responsibility to go and reach the lost. Do they? They may say they care about lost souls dying and going to hell. Oh, it moves them. They just care so much about the lost. But have you noticed it doesn't actually motivate them enough to go and do anything about it? They know exactly what the scripture says. So does the devil. And it causes him to shudder. I'm not interested in what you know. I'm interested in what you believe. And your belief is seen in how you follow through on what you know. It gets worse. This is going to make you uncomfortable. It's okay. The reason the church today is content to merely exist... The reason struggling churches give up, the reason so many Christians have absolutely no sense of wonder and excitement and expectation at all is because the church today doesn't really believe that God is still at work and still in the miracle business today. That's why the church is in the state it's in today. We know exactly what the Bible says. We know what the Scripture says. We know that it says God is still working. We just don't actually believe it. How could He still be at work in our world today? Miracles, oh, those things don't actually happen. The church today, how often are we like the religious leaders of Israel here? They know exactly what the Scripture says, but they don't believe it. God is doing something great in their midst. God is fulfilling scripture in their midst. He's fulfilling prophecy in their midst, and they miss it. How is that possible? It's because they didn't truly believe. It's the same reason we miss it today, church. We know exactly what the scripture says, but we just don't actually believe that God is still at work today and still doing miracles today. And so we just make church a game, it's just a routine. We open the doors on a Sunday, we open them on a Wednesday, and then we'll just go about our lives every other day of the week. God wants more for you than that. Don't you know that? God wants more for you than just a gathering two days a week. God has bigger plans for this world than just saying, hey, come to our church two days a week. The kingdom of God will not be built Only two out of seven days a week. What are we doing, Christians? You think you're better than the religious leaders of Israel here? The church is just like them today. I hope the same will not be said of us, George's Creek. I hope that our knowledge of Scripture and tradition doesn't lead to apathy and indifference rather than worship and obedience. How about you? I don't know about you, but I personally believe that God is still in the miracle business today. Do you believe that? I personally believe that God is still doing great things today. That God can revive a church. That God can reach a city. That God can renew a people. That God can save the lost. That He can change hearts. That He can make disciples. And that He is doing it through us, His church today. I still believe God's in the miracle business. Do you? Can you imagine what the church would look like today if we actually believed that? Think about what this church would look like. Think about what the church across the world would look like today if we actually believed that God was still at work through His people. Don't you think that would motivate us to go and reach the lost sometimes? To, To devote ourselves to missions and evangelism? To commit ourselves to the local church? To getting involved in the local church? Joining a gospel group? Don't you think it'd motivate us to go and minister to the hurting and the rejected and the broken of our world? Don't you think the church would actually do something if we believed that God was in our midst and at work today? I do. Apathetic people don't take Jesus and his kingdom seriously, but adoring people do. My question is, which one are you? Are you apathetic or adoring? Because that's the only right response, is it not church? I want you to notice what happens. Verses 7 through 12. It says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now this is a beautiful section of Scripture, worthy of three sermons, but we're not going to do that, okay? We're just going to, I want to show you a few things real quick. First and foremost, it's easy to miss here, but there's a beautiful, beautiful sign of hope and redemption and restoration right here from the very beginning, is there not? Because did you notice, it says that the wise men were traveling from the east. Now, that's not just to tell us their point of origin, because if God wanted to do that, He's God. He could have inspired Matthew to write, and wise men came from Babylon, or Persia, or Assyria, or wherever they came from, right? That's not the point. The point is not where they came from geographically. The point is a theological point. Wise men come from the east to the presence of Jesus to worship Him. What's going on here? Well, if you've been in our two-year study of Genesis, which I promise we're going we're gonna to finish this week, I promise you. You'll be familiar with this, right? Because keep in mind, think back to the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, after mankind sinned against God, what happens? God banishes man from the garden. They are banished from the presence of God. They walk away from the presence of God to the east of the garden. And that becomes a huge theme all throughout the book of Genesis. You want some homework, go home this afternoon and just track that phrase to the east all throughout Genesis. Here's what you'll see. Every time a person or people are getting further and further away from God's will and the presence of God, they go to the east. And so don't miss this. This is how beautiful it is. This is how great scripture is, right? The Old Testament literally begins with mankind walking away from the presence of God, going to the east. The New Testament literally begins with people coming from the east to the presence of God. That's good, is it not? It's a sign that Jesus is already undoing sin's curse. It was the the curse of sin that led men away from God towards the east, away from the presence of God. And it is the presence of God in the flesh that draws men back. No one comes unto the Father except through who? Through Jesus. He's already undoing sin's curse. They're coming from the east to the presence of Jesus. And notice what they're doing here. They've probably heard about this star. We don't have time to go into this, but probably from a a young Jewish boy named Daniel who was the wisest of the Babylonian wise men and then the Persian wise men. And that prophecy was passed down and down and down and down to generations. And then the time comes when the star is supposed to rise. And they see it. Now, if you're a pagan stargazer, what's happening to you in that moment? You've heard about this prophecy of a star It's been passed down from generation to generation, 490 years goes by, and at the exact time when a star is supposed to rise in the sky to signify the birth of the Messiah King over all creation, it appears. You know what you realize in that moment? God is real. Daniel was right. The scriptures were right. And when they realize that God is real, and what this star means, they know we have to do we have to go we must go and worship him because if god is real and the scriptures are true and everything is happening right now it means that this really is the king the messiah over all creation we have to go to him and that's exactly what they do and i want you to notice their reaction the very first time they see jesus what do they do they look at this child being held by his mother and they fall down and they worship and adore him. It's the only thing that made sense in that moment, right? The only reason it made sense is because it's the only right response. You you realize who Jesus is and what he came to do. The only right response is to worship and adore him. And notice this. Jesus hasn't done anything at this point, has he? He's no more than two years old. He's just a child. He hasn't lived his sinless life. He hasn't died his sacrificial substitutionary death. He hasn't risen again. He hasn't ascended back to the right hand of the majesty on high. He's done nothing. And yet because they know who he is and what he came to do, they worship him in anticipation of what he would do. Now let me ask you this question, church. How much more should we worship and adore Jesus in light of what he has done? They were worshiping in him in light of what he would do. Well, guess what? That baby grew up, didn't he? He did live a perfect, sinless life so that we could be called righteous. He did die a sacrificial, substitutionary death on the cross in our place for our sins. That we might not experience the wrath of God. He did rise from the grave for our justification so that through Him we could be cleared right in the eyes of God. He ascended back to the right hand of the majesty on high where He lives to this day to make intercession for His people. How much more should we worship Him in light of what He has done, church? That is the only right response to who Jesus is And what He has done. He is the sovereign king and ruler over all creation. And listen to me. He is a better authority for your life than you could ever hope to be. He is the sovereign ruler who holds the future in His hands. So you don't have to be anxious. You can entrust your life and your future to Him. He's the God who humbled Himself enough to leave the glories of heaven to live amongst sinful men, to endure scorn and shame and rejection and even death on a cross for a bunch of ungrateful, undeserving sinners like us. How can we respond with anything else other than worship and adoration? So come, let us worship and adore Him this morning. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father God, we ask you to change our hearts this morning. Because so often, Lord, we have hearts that do not respond with worship and adoration. Lord, we're oftentimes angered by the kingship of Jesus because we want to be the king of our own lives. Father, would you help us this morning Would you give us the grace we need to submit ourselves to Jesus' rule and His authority? Lord, many of us are anxious about the call to follow Jesus. We we worry about what it's going to mean for for our friendships and our relationships with our families. We we worry about what it's going to mean for our lives and where you might call us to go, where you might send us. God, would you help us to understand that just because it's a difficult decision does not mean it's a decision we don't need to make. Lord, would you give us the grace that we need this morning to to turn away from our fears and entrust them to you so that we might respond to your call to follow Christ. Lord, I pray also for our church and for those in our world for the most common response today, which is probably apathy, Lord where we know all the truths of Scripture. We know all of your attributes. We can quote passages from your word. We can debate theology, but so often it's just a head knowledge, and it's not a belief. Lord, there are so many in the church today who know that Jesus is king and the sovereign ruler over all. We know that he is on a mission to reconcile a people to Himself from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, and people. And yet we just don't care. Would You awaken our hearts this morning, Lord? Give us a burning desire to to be a part of what Jesus is doing. Lord, would You soften our hard hearts to be sympathetic to the mission of Christ? And Lord, this morning, would You give us the grace we need to be able to worship and adore Jesus for who he is and for what he has done. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.